another beautiful day. So let's talk about suffering. (laughs) (laughs) We're also going to talk about the end of suffering tonight. (laughs) So um, Aaron and I are going to share some reflections and then we'll be doing a bit of relational practice and dyads this evening. And we wanted to reflect um, some more, which we have been all week, on the Four Noble Truths, which, as we've mentioned, were the Buddha's first teachings and so comprehensive of this path to liberation. And for those of you who are newer to the Buddha Dharma, these teachings, um, these four truths, that there is suffering, that there is a cause to suffering, that there is an end to suffering, and there's a path to the end of suffering. And we've been really reflecting a lot and working with these first two, that there is a cause, that there is suffering, and that this must be understood, and that there's a cause to suffering, our unceasing need for things to be different than they are, really our ignorance into um, not understanding the suffering that we have. So we've been spending a lot of time just staying, not turning away from what's here with us that we carry, that arrives moment to moment. And we keep emphasizing that. It might sound like a broken record, but it is so important because most of our strategies are trying to turn away. And they don't work. That's why we end up here, back on the cushion again. (laughs) You know, a lot of times, I know this is true in my life, when things are going well, I practice less. And then the shit hits the fan, and I'm like, oh my god, where's my cushion? There's a story from Rumi. It's a beautiful allegory. So there was a merchant in Baghdad who sent a worker to the market to buy some things, and... The worker came running back, and he was trembling, and he said, I was in the marketplace, and I got shoved by this woman in the crowd, and I turned, and I realized it was death that shoved me. And she looked at me, and she made a threatening gesture. So please give me your horse so that I can ride to Samara, so that death will not find me. So the merchant lent him his horse, and the worker rode off as fast as he could to Samara. Then the merchant went to the marketplace to finish the job, to get the things he needed, and he saw Death standing there. And so he asked Death, you know, why did you make a threatening gesture to my worker? And Death said, that wasn't a threatening gesture, it was a look of surprise. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. (laughs) (laughs) So we have these strategies distractions and things that we think will fix our suffering. And it's not to say that we, we can't find ways to heal or balance ourselves. But often they just become these reflexive habits, or as the great says, Solange says, I tried to drink it away, I tried to, <laughs> to put one in the air, I tried to dance it away, I tried to change it with my hair, I ran my credit card up, got a new dress, make it better, I tried to work it away, but that just made me even sadder. I tried to keep myself busy, I ran around in circles, 
think I made myself dizzy. Away, away. <laughs> <laughs> so we all have our different strategies, but we're learning to stay and learning to see clearly and learning to meet the suffering with kindness. And seeing clearly means seeing all of the causes and conditions that brought us to this moment. The ancestral roads, the intergenerational trauma, the familial patterns, the societal messages, the injustices, the oppression, all the causes and conditions that are here with us on this cushion, we don't leave them behind. But seeing those things clearly helps us not take the suffering personally, too. And helps us meet it with a measure of balance so that we can attend to it with wisdom and with compassion. There was a lot of talk about rage and anger in different groups and different folks. And, you know, our responses are often justified but we can't stay there. Those states are not sustainable and they don't allow us to attend to the grief and the loss that's underneath a lot of those. So we're going to be entering into the territory of the third noble truth this evening that there is an end to suffering and that this must be realized. And this one is um, a bit mysterious because we can set up all the causes and conditions that we know through all the wisdom traditions that help support this freedom. So we can create this beautiful retreat container, we can have nourishing and wholesome food, we can take care of each other, and cultivate these hearts and minds. But then there's a letting go to grace and faith and this paradox that we seek transformation, but transformation actually comes from allowing (coughs) and from acceptance. It's not a doing, but it's a real trusting. And allowing is not passive. It's actually very alive because it's filled with presence so that we can respond appropriately. And it's a bit like that saying that, you know, practice is like jumping off a cliff. The bad news is there's no parachute. The good news is there's no ground. And so we're in this alive process. It's not an end that we get to. But we're in this alive process of trusting, trusting life itself. And so that's the invitation for our exploration tonight.
Yeah, it's a practice as the path unfolds, living within this paradox by which we learn to not let suffering take up all the space. And in so doing, we actually become much more sensitive and responsive to our own suffering and the suffering of the world. There's actually more space in the heart to respond. And so First Noble Truth, as 7A said, to be understood, dukkha to be understood, being in contention with our experience, to be abandoned, to be put down. The Third Noble Truth, basically saying that freedom is possible, not in some abstract sense with some guy 2,500 years ago, but freedom is possible for you. I remember in my practice when I finally got that it was like true for me. It felt for a long time kind of out there. Other people, when I actually got like, oh right, this is true for me. There was just a good unk. So third noble truth is to be realized, to realize that freedom is possible. And this doesn't happen conceptually. We can't really think our way into it. It's not formulaic or mathematical. I like the word realization. The translation, um, the word realization in the Pali language, the language that was spoken you know, in ancient India 2,600 years ago when these teachings came forth, um, the word realization is the translation of, a, of a, the Pali root word saka, which means actual or true, which means to be absolutely honest, which means to see things as they are. Like this practice is asking us to be absolutely honest with ourselves, not to put on a show, not to walk around in the ideas of what you think liberation looks like, but it, I appreciate that realization starts with being real, which is important to understand because there can often be a, a real idea that like we're practicing to get to nibbana. I mean, it's so pervasive in the culture. You know, I, I learned that I could get to Nibbana ununited <laughs> last night. <laughs> get your way to United, spend more money on the credit cards, and it will fly you to Nibbana. It would be a lot easier than all these retreats I do. There's <laughs> a stayed in a hotel in Las Vegas years and years ago with an old boyfriend, and there was a bar called Nir- Nirvana. It's like, let's meet at Nirvana. It's just so pervasive, the, the kind of the um, objectification of something that's actually quite sacred and much deeper. But it's important to know, do you have a relationship in your own heart with the flavor of freedom? Do you have a relationship in your own mind with the possibility of freedom for you personally? So Lazi was pointing to that in, in his beautiful talk last night, like how, how to work with the hindrances and wake up um, within all of it. And something that I appreciate is that realization, you know, in Buddhism, the Buddha never described exactly what it is. The closest thing that I relate to is freedom from greed and hatred and delusion. But that's like, okay, so then what? 
freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion, and all of the ways that the teachings are, the pointings toward realization, our language are what they're not. Unborn, unconditioned, deathless, all these things that they are not. And in some ways, that's actually a fantastic pedagogy, because when you put out the description of a state, often the mind will work to emulate it. And then that's just more manufacturing. So, realization, I think, is probably experienced differently by different people. So I'm not here to like, give you a discourse on what realization looks like, because your realization is your realization. Um, but, but, but really this capacity to know peace and ease is really at the heart of why we practice. And it's important to keep it close. The whole thing is it's more like hearing a different flow of reality than it is any kind of acquisition. I was talking last night a couple nights ago with Seven Solazi, and I was just talking about my own practice, and you know, I said I feel like really self-conscious in some ways talking about the beautiful dimensions of my practice. And somebody said, Aaron, like, bring it on. But I could see how much easier it was to talk about my dukkha than to talk about some of the power and beauty that's unfolded. Feeling like like the culture doesn't exactly give me props for that when it's in a deep way. Like, it feels very very vulnerable in a certain sense, very personal in a certain sense. And I just was appreciating, like, how um, important it is not to diminish what happens through practice over the years. It doesn't do anybody a favor. So what we're doing here as we practice together day after day in this way, is we're, we're kind of cultivating a really fertile ground of the heart and mind. We're cultivating mindfulness and interest and presence and kindness and collectedness of heart. And as these factors stabilize in the heart-mind, there becomes less of a, of a, of a feeling of the mind going out. There's a stabilizing and actually being interested and, and, and abiding in um, the actuality of your moment-to-moment experience. And in this way, all the stuff going on, there's not a pulling away from it, but there's, it's like not as compelling. We're not addicted to it in quite the same way. And seven days beautiful instruction this morning with thinking like the thoughts become over time just less compelling and they become a little agitating almost, like agitating and coarse in, in, a, in a sense. And, and as we abide in presence in this way and the thinking thins out, so does the, the self-construct. So does like the, the story of who you are. I'm not saying to put down your identity in any way. The truth is we can't actually become realized without fully inhabiting identity. Identity is part of the deal. 
it's like the sense of when the thoughts spin out, like who are you when you don't have thoughts to tell you who you are? Like right now, like what would it be like? You're not having thoughts to tell you who you are. Who and what are you? What, what is this? What's here? And so in time, there's a, there's a process where, you know, we become less caught up in the momentary objects that move through the awareness. Objects that always move through the awareness. We're seeing, tasting, we have feelings, we have ideas about things. But we get so caught up in what's being known that it can be easy to miss the flavor of the awareness itself. Awareness has a particular um, flavor. It has the scent of the kind of freedom that we're pointing to. And you experience this in whatever way you, you experience it, in whatever way you know it. And for me, what I'm speaking about in the Third Noble Truth, part of why I love teaching the Third Noble Truth, is really this flavor of the sacred. We're, we're, we're finger-pointing at the moon here. It's like, it's just a maturity when, when, when the practice isn't about getting the next thing, but about coming into a deeper relationship with reality and love the life that lives through you. I wanted to um, just share a quote by by um, Maladona Somme. Some of you might know him or his book, The Water and the Spirit. He's talking about dwelling in the realm of the sacred, which, which we're pointing to some. And he says, in the culture of my people, the Dagara, we have no word for the supernatural. The closest we come to this concept is Yulbongura, which means the thing that knowledge can't eat. The thing that knowledge can't eat. This word, he says, this word suggests that the life and power of certain things depend upon their resistance to the kind of categorizing knowledge that human beings apply to everything. In Western reality, there's a clear split between the spiritual and the material, between religious and secular life. But this concept is alien to the Dagara. He says, for us, as for many indigenous cultures, the supernatural is part of our everyday lives. The material is just the spiritual taking on form. The secular is religion in a lower key, a rest area from the tension of religious and spiritual practice. He says, dwelling in the realm of the sacred is both exciting and terrifying. The thing that knowledge can't eat. So the way to realize, right, is to participate in this, like, great mystery of what it means to be alive, of how it is. And here we're, we're, we're deepening into that. And we just start, like Seven is saying, right with where you are, relaxed and curious, whether you're 
seething or blissed out or, you know, whatever it is. It's all part of, part of um, the material, the fodder for, for, for deepening realization. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.